0: That's blue Nile.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Arsenal Women Askcast on askblog.com The best podcast dedicated to the Arsenal women's team and we can say that with absolute faith and confidence because it is the only podcast dedicated to the Arsenal women's team. Um, just a little bit of housekeeping initially. I just want to I guess apologise for the fact that we haven't had um, an episode in seven weeks or so. We had uh, we had quite a good high profile guest lined up who unfortunately had to pull out so that's something we'll revisit and hopefully be able to do later in the year Um, so that kind of explains the gap we did have an episode planned but it didn't quite come off but nevertheless we do have a star guest for this episode uh, who has not fallen through delighted to be joined by Um, Katie Wyatt the newly I was about to say newly crowned rather than newly appointed but maybe newly crowned um, is appropriate the newly crowned women's football correspondent for the athletic Katie thanks so much for joining us
1: no, thank you for having me on. Uh,
0: Katie, I, I guess um, before, I mean, one of the, well, the reason I wanted, I wanted to get you on really was um, you wrote a really interesting article uh, last week about kind of inequality in the WSL and, and as Arsenal fans, we really benefit, I guess, from that inequality and have done for, for a number of years. But um, before we kind of get into that, I guess I wanted to just talk a little bit about you um, initially. So you joined the Athletic last week um hmm. I believe as, as the women's football correspondent um can you just tell us I guess a little bit um uh, your kind of professional history how you came to be I think I'm right in saying it's only you and Susie who are absolute bona fide full-time women's football correspondents um so how you came to have this uh, I guess this this really prominent and exciting role
1: yeah so I started when I was about 15 um There was. It was all a bit of an accident, really, as I think these things often end up being more than people will admit to. But um, when I was a Bradford fan and had a season ticket and went to watch them every week, and there was a feature in the program at the time that was asking for fans to write columns and send them in, and they published them. And I wrote one at the time, and then they just City emailed me back and said, "Oh, we can't publish it." I think because someone had sent in a bit of a close to the line column the week before, and they'd sort of decided this might not be the right time to run this feature type thing. Um, but we wish you all the best and that sort of rejection, standard rejection letter. And I thought, Oh well, I've written this piece, I want people to read it. So I went off and set up a blog and then just from there started writing for other Bradford blogs. There was one that Brother well, Stellar's one called with the Post that's quite um widely regarded and widely read among Bradford fans um, and started writing more posts for them and that was something that I did all the way through school and university and went to press conferences and did interviews with players and then that was sort of something that Took up a lot of my time, and then in university led to um, a job working at Radio Leeds and being part of their sport coverage, and then BBC Sport. And I went to the Sports Journalism Awards and um, got to meet uh, loads of people. but some of them are now at the Athletic, and people that gave me career advice. And one of those said, "Well, why are you not writing about women's football?" And arranged for me to go to the FA Cup final that year. And within a few weeks of doing that, and a few kind of game weeks, I was. I was just sort of staggered by the amount of stories and the amount of issues um, around the game that no one was really talking about or covering. Um, mm. And especially when that was the same year that the whole Mark thing kicked off as well. Um, so there just seemed to be so much um, scope for storytelling in there. And it was a, an area that I really threw myself into. Um, and then within a few weeks of graduating, the Telegraph for advertising for um, a women's football reporter. And then I got that role. And then after working there for a year and going to Champions Leagues and World Cups and things like that, I worked there for, I say, so yeah, I worked there for two years and then ended up at the Athletic last week.
0: Yeah, that's, an, and actually, I, I think in a way, there's a, a I guess, like a similarity with, with Arsenal and Bradford City, probably one of the few. Um, that there is like a this kind of rich, I guess, literary tradition because Bradford, um, you know, have one of the most well known and I think oldest uh, fanzines this year. Yeah. Again. Um, and you know, Arsenal, like, uh, the Guna fanzine, um, was, you know, at the forefront of the fanzine culture that this site, Ask blog. um, I can say it because I wasn't in on the ground floor as one of the forefronts of the kind of the blogging explosion. And, and, uh, and, and, it's quite, um, I, I think it's quite not strange, but, but quite, but quite nice that like a club like Bradford city and I guess cause Bradford city had a, a quite, quite exciting history. Shall we say yeah. kind of the, the, the turn of, um, the turn of the 20th century, Um, And so would would you say that that was any kind of influence um, on you at all? Or was this always something that, that you just felt naturally that you wanted to do?
1: Um, I always really enjoyed writing, so even, I know it's a very cliched thing to say, and I remember someone reading something once that was like, oh no, a good journalist ever begins with, oh I used to write poetry when I was six, but (laughs) I did always used to enjoy writing, and English was my favourite subject at school, and I used to write fan fiction and books, and not that they were necessarily publishing worthy, but that that sort of thing. And then I think throwing myself into writing about football, I remember there were several writers at the Post in the year that people might remember Bradford making the League Cup final when they were still a League Two team or beating Chelsea in the FA Cup for instance and there were writers that were very good at capturing those moments and writing about what they meant to people and just bringing in things there was a certain writer that would bring in Simpsons references or um, was very good at analytics and statistics and graphs and stuff like that and they would just be writing about football in a way that I'd never seen it written about before because or I'd never seen Bradford written about before um, who, who were kind of covered dominantly by predominantly by kind of the local news and things like that. So I think that that kind of ignited something in me where I certainly thought, wow, that's something that I really really want to do, and then it sort of became the aim from being about 16, 17.
0: Yeah, and uh, I mean, you referenced the the 2012 uh, League Cup final. I, I was at Valley Parade for the quarterfinal yep. <laughs>
1: that ask year. That.
0: <laughs> um, in fact, I've been to Valley Parade three times as an Arsenal fan. Haven't seen us win any of them, so not a happy hunting ground for Arsenal fans. But yeah, we remember that night for very different reasons. I think it's fair yep. to say. But let's move swiftly on. Um, <laughs> so, you know, obviously you're going to Bradford City every week, and you know. Uh, i I think similar to me i loved writing and football just seemed like the most natural thing to write about because it was like a a culture i was very very involved in but uh, did you ever think um that writing about women's football would be like a viable full-time um i guess occupation Did, did you ever see that opportunity or um or or is that just luck as well
1: Uh, Well a little bit of both on the one hand I think I was really really lucky that I happened to graduate in the year that I did because two years later you would have been graduating into the Covid uh, job market A year before you would have graduated and it would have been a case of doing lots of freelancing at the BBC and not having a staff contract at the paper and having the support and the learning experience and, and the sort of structure that that Brought. So I do think all the time that I was really, really lucky. But I look back at it now and I think there's so much more opportunity within women's football than there was five years ago even. Um, I remember when it was kind of maybe only people like She Kicks or Girls on the Ball or yourselves that were doing women's football coverage in any sort of great depth or detail. And now there are certainly still, don't get me wrong, games where you will be the only press person there or the only national press person there or maybe when England are playing in some fairly far, far-flung country, there might only be two or three of you there. Um, so I don't think it has a huge profile necessarily still, mm. but I think that the amount of interest in it and the amount of space that you see devoted to it and the amount of people who know Lucy Bronze or whoever it is and are able to analyse that game in detail or know of her or have it, even a passing interest in these sports people is far greater than it would have been four years ago When I don't know necessarily if they would have been the justification from a financial point of view or maybe from an interest point of view but i think it's always a case of who's going to be the first and then i always used to say to molly and Susie and molly hudson at the times and Susie rack obviously that we've mentioned that i always felt it was a bit kind of like a rising tide lift all boat type thing and the more successful there was i certainly don't think that my job would have been created if the guardian hadn't brought Susie on even if even if only in a freelance capacity at first to do columns and blogs and things like that. And Molly very much created a job for herself at the time by covering women's football in the detail and with the skill that she did. So I think um, it's very much the, where the more people that do it and the more people that think of new ways to do it and new mm. things to bring to the conversation, the more avenues open up, up, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think one of the things we've found on our site, so I have uh, I guess I've been writing about Arsenal women for the last like nine years, I guess, um, is that it's kind of like if you build it, they will come kind of yeah. thing. Um, and if you, do, if you do the coverage properly and you do it regularly, you will get that kind of loyal audience. Whereas I think the the mistake a lot of outlets make is they just cover a big game or they just cover a final and then they yeah. wonder why they don't really get traffic for it. And it's because that outlet is not a trusted kind of women's football outlet, whereas I think regularity – Breeds, you know, you you get that audience, and I think that's something that we've we've really discovered um, on this site as well. Mm. Um, so, kind of, um, I guess, narrowing the conversation down. One of the first pieces uh, that you wrote for the Athletic was about um, the inequality between teams in the WSL, which I think is absolutely undeniable. Um, you know, again, we're an Arsenal podcast. We're sitting here. Arsenal have played five games. They've won all five of them. They have a goal difference of plus twenty five. Um, and, you know, that's, that's not even just this season. You know, in a way, Arsenal are kind of winners and losers here because Arsenal have um, benefited from the inequality in women's football for about 25 years, really, when they were one of the few teams who were really kind of really pushing it. Um, they probably lost out a bit because other clubs have become interested. Yeah. But that's good for the wider women's game. But when you look at it, you know, None of the domestic tro- trophies have been won by a team outside of Arsenal and Manchester City since 2014. And that was Liverpool. Uh, when they cared about their women's team, they won the league. Going back even further than that, you're looking at Birmingham City in 2012. So it, in terms of the domestic trophies particularly, it's, it's a really closed shop, um, the WSL. And there are real kind of haves and have-nots. So I I think the inequality in the league is absolutely undeniable. But I guess my first question to you is, is that a bug or is it a feature? Um, You know, in other words, is it a problem? And if so, why? Because I look at kind of um, the Bundesliga, only Wolfsburg win that. I look at, you know, France, only Lyon win anything there. Barcelona are beginning to turn the screw in Spain and when you look at men's football there's there's inequality everywhere and it doesn't mm. seem to make the game any less popular. So is, is um, inequality in the WSL, is that a feature or a bug in your eyes that needs fixing?
1: Um, I think it depends what lens you want to look at it through and whether you see women's football as being in a very different position to men's football and therefore it matters more because I think with men's football, you do get people that are very disillusioned with the game, and we've seen it in particular with the last few weeks with the movement of Project Big Picture that people say oh, the game's all about money, there's so much inequality. But I think what keeps people coming back is this idea that the Premier League, I don't know if it's a myth or if there's anything statistically to back this up, but the idea that anyone can beat anyone on a given day and it's anyone's game to take and it's all one, you can have freak results and stuff like that. And the idea that this happens a lot more frequently than it does in women's game is probably about right because I can't really remember the last time. I think you'd probably be going back, apart from maybe Brighton's draw against City, Manchester City this season. I think you have to go back a long time, and before you found a really kind of creditable, reasonable upset. Maybe mm-hmm. Liverpool uh, in, in the league, that is, maybe live, you're looking at kind of Liverpool and um, Man United in the cup, for example, but um, I, it does feel instinctively like it's a lot less competitive than the Premier League, and then the problems that you have with the game being where it's at is that, is that maybe a credibility damage that the, the WSL is going to take, then are you going to be able to sell that across mm-hmm. the world? If you, Yes, because you're relying on the big brands of Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester City that are known all over the world. Premier League is massive all over the globe. Um, so on one hand, that works. But then are you going to keep getting fans through the gates? if they're, Yes, you can watch a Peniel Harder and a Sam Kerr twice a season, but you also have to sit through six or seven really heavy defeats in the meantime um, mm. per season. So I think, it's, it's, I think the problem that the WSL has when it's trying to grow the game is that in men's football, there's almost a kind of mindless generational loyalty that it's a tradition to have a season ticket and you will keep renewing, you'll keep going back because you've done it for 25 years and your granddad and your grandmother and your great-grandmother all did it before you type of thing. So, of course, you're going to keep going back. And I think with women's football being a lot newer, um, with a lot of people that are going, maybe trying it for the first time or maybe taking their kids for the first time, are they going to keep going if it makes them feel miserable every week or they're maybe not seeing the rewards of that? So I think that's the position that women's football maybe has less of a margin for error because it's in this growth phase and maybe doesn't have the blindless, mindless blind loyalty and commitment mm. and tradition that's with the men's game, maybe.
0: And uh, you, you've hit on a number of things that, um, you know, Talk about in this discussion, and 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 I guess I guess one of the questions is um, you know like the WSL is beginning to look quite a bit like the Premier League um, mm. in terms of the dominant teams um, again from an Arsenal lens um, the, the Arsenal women's team are in you know a, a much I think a, a much superior position both financially and footballistically compared to the men's team but nevertheless Arsenal are you know one of the, the kind of big brands um, of the Premier League and. And, and I guess, um, and, and I think it's really important, one of the things... That for me, the biggest philosophical question facing women's football at the moment as a growth sport is, do we want it to be like the Premier League? Do we want to market it on that basis and say, this is almost, this is a bit like the men's product? Mm. Or do we want to market it based on its differences? Because there are slight differences, like it's still football, but it's, it just looks slightly different. So, and And it feels like we're quite a long way down that road now of making it. A bit like the look, making it look a bit like the Premier League, and I think eventually the Women's Champions League, um, yeah. with clubs like Juve and Real Madrid and, and and Man United, they'll come into the picture, I'm sure, in the next five years. So, do you think that there was, or that there still is, an alternative path that should be investigated, or do you see this kind of, I guess, you know, women's version of the men's game is is that too much of a formality, and should it have been done differently?
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like we're almost a little bit like you too far down that road now. I think we've discussed this before off-air off, off air and just sort of in personally and privately having discussions at games and things. But I do feel that when they went for the route of full-time professionalism in 2017, 20, ahead of the 2018-19 season, that there was maybe a lot of people in the game who thought, is this too soon? Is this running before it can walk? Are there clubs that are going to be able to do this and do it sustainably? And I think you saw with casualties like the Yeovles and the Sunderlands who had really good pedigrees in women's football and not being able to achieve those standards and sort of being forced out of the picture. I think that for me, that felt like the watershed moment where the lot was sort of cast and that was the route that they're going down and there are certainly benefits to that and I think that would you see Chelsea and Arsenal and Manchester City with champion with the players that they've been able to attract would they still be able to compete in the Champions League at a time when all the European clubs are invest, investing in the way that they are, would you have uh, this new TV deal in the works? Would, you, would it be bringing potentially as much money in as it might do this year? Would you have the likes of the Harders and the Kurds in the league? Would you have um, Chelsea routinely selling out their home grounds? Would you have 30,000s in the stadiums and for these one-off games? I don't know if you would have any of that if you didn't have mm. such close partnership with the men's clubs but at the same time if you'd allowed the game to grow organically would you have the huge 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 gap that you now now have between the Bristol's, the Birmingham's, the Liverpool who are obviously not investing in the way that they should be doing. Um, it's very very difficult to say that you would have that if you hadn't gone down this route of pushing partnerships with men's teams and it's, I don't really know where they go to solve that because at the same time you can't punish people like Chelsea or Arsenal for investing properly but you can't almost reward the clubs that don't and then maybe say, oh, here's an extra 250,000 because you're not partnered to a rich men's clubs." Well, the Chelsea's, the Arsenal's and the cities are probably going to be going, oh, well, where's our free 250,000? So I think even if you look at a point where the game gets sustainable and they're bringing in advertising and marketing revenue and more TV revenue, the part of that you imagine will be split equally between the teams in the league, and another part of that you imagine it'll still be the teams that have the greatest international and domestic marketing appeal, like the Arsenal's and the Chelseas, that will benefit most from from the kind of um, financial um, marketability of their of their teams and of women's football. If that makes sense, so I do think it's very difficult to pinpoint how, without being bankrolled by a parent men's side the teams at the bottom of the pyramid really start to step up
0: yeah and you you know you referenced um the the kind of the move towards professionalism which i think was always slated as part of the plan for when the wsl um was kind of was realized in in 2011 i think another real fork in the road i think that not many people know about was that the wage cap um Uh, regulations were changed in 2015 and that's and Manchester City pushed for that very hard because they came onto the scene so what you used to have in the WSL was when they started it there was a wage cap and you were allowed to pay three of your first team players more than £20,000 a year but only three And what this led to was a real spread of talent across the league. So someone like Ellen White, for example, was playing for Arsenal, but she wasn't one of Arsenal's three best players. So she wasn't getting that, you know, that increased cap. So she went to Notts County where she was the best player and therefore got more money. And you ended up with a really equal competition, the 2014 WSL Liverpool and Bristol Academy as they were, fighting it out on the last day. Arsenal finished fourth that year, I think. Like there there was a real sense of kind of, Equality, and I think that kind of went in about 2015, and and now the the wage cap is a really loose kind of um, as a percentage of your revenue, which obviously favours Arsenal, Chelsea, Manchester City, and and I guess um, really as, as as part of this discussion, you referenced as well, you know, Project Big Picture, which made a really fleeting mention of of, of an independent women's league, and um, you know the FA. I think deserve quite a lot of credit, a lot of credit actually for what they've done with women's mm-hmm. football in the last 10 years. But there is this question of can, like, can they take it to the next step? Do they have the resource available um, to, you know, really push some of these contracts and things like that. So I, I guess, um, you know, do you see an independently run uh, league as, uh, women's league as an inevitability and obviously there are there are talks about the Premier League taking over do, do you think that will happen and do you think that would be a good thing if it did?
1: Um, I think definitely independent leagues on the way the FA have always made known that they're going to set the league up and get it to a certain point and then pass it on to a suitable custodian and I think to a lot of people's minds the Premier League would be the obvious one given they're running the men's top flight and given the work that they've been able to do since 1992 in turning the men's top league into the most famous and the richest, the most powerful in the world. So I think there are certainly a lot of arguments to get the Premier League to do it. And I know that Richard Masters has spoken publicly that he's very keen to do it, but I think the point that you made about salary caps just highlights how many conundrums and issues women's football faces compared to the men's game because it's like they've made this, when they did remove the salary caps and you kind of had a free reign for footballers to be earning, as some of them at the top clubs are, hundred fifty, three hundred thousand a year. And you, on one hand, you're thinking, yes, absolutely, women's footballers should be paid um, a, a reasonable wage that just, you know, that their talents kind of reflect um, and that's representative of the work that they put in, their skill, their talent, everything like that. But and you know, we've heard situations of players that WSL clubs that are maybe earning. 15 19 20, a year and which probably isn't going to be able to buy your house and or have a sustainable way of life in a lot of cities and if you're doing that for kind of 10 15 years when a lot of the people that you went to school with a lot of the people in your social circle have got mortgages have got cars are doing all these things that you can't do because of your financial situation because of women's football you know we do have to pay players reasonable and fair wages so it's that constant conundrum of you need to do all these conditions you need to market the game in a professional way you need to give players what they deserve but you need to make sure that everyone else has to keep up and that you're not maybe pursuing anything that has long-term consequences or that then creates an inequality that might kind of you in the backside three years down the line so it's just a huge issue all the time of is the game running before we can walk, can everyone else do this, are we putting enough rules in place, do we have to cut it off at a certain point, it's just a huge list of, um, I think every question that you have to consider then has about 20 other questions and implications and it just ends up being a very very tricky picture so I don't envy the FA at all for some of the choices that they've had to make but I think certainly you have seen a lot of Dividends for kind of paid because of the full time league that you are seeing a really good product in most instances. It's just a shame that it's kind of hamstrung slightly by these really lopsided results that we're getting as a result of the inequality.
0: Yeah, and no, I, I think you touched on something important there, which is with pretty much every question, like philosophical <laughs> question about, or marketing question about women's football is that there isn't really an, a right answer. Yeah. Ever. It's about taking kind of almost the least worst decision. And I guess, you know, it, it, it's very similar actually to the kind of, I guess, the early 20th century in the men's game, when you had all these football clubs and there was this big fight about, they were all amateur. And then there was this kind of big fight about going professional or not going professional um, and lots and lots of clubs fell by the wayside. And I'm looking at women's football now and I, I know they're not out of business, but clubs like Watford, Donny Bells, um, you know, real kind of uh, Yeovil, Sunderland as well. Mm. You know, Sunderland, Sunderland have produced, you know, about a third of the current Lionesses squad and, you know, they, they've kind of really been left behind by all of this. And that's, that's really not fair because, you know, the, the, these are when I look at the WSL at the moment, I think like the real heroes of the WSL are clubs like Bristol, like Reading, like Birmingham, who are not backed by big men's teams, who are not backed by big budgets in that respect, but proportionately put a lot more of their, their time yeah. and money into their women's team. And, and I guess the question is are they next? Um, on the chopping block, will a club like Birmingham just get to a point where they just say oh, what what 's the point in this anymore? do you think
1: um, I think that 's a difficult thing because at the same time we have this argument of we don 't want people getting too far ahead because we don 't want to discourage people well you can 't cap someone else 's potential just because other people are not kind of investing or able to keep up with it but I think that the problem that these clubs are facing now is that they know and they're very frank about the fact that they don't have the budgets to compete and my athletic colleague Nancy Frostick did a piece with Tanya Oxford at Bristol City and they were making the point that for years Bristol City have had this model of producing really good stars that have then kind of been picked off by richer, bigger clubs so Caroline Weir for example who's now at Man City being one of those players and you look at that and you think that they're going to have to at some point come up with a new model because they've had the same model for however many years in a league that has changed two, three, four times um around them in terms of what it demands what you need to compete in it where the strengths and weaknesses of that league lie so i think that you're asking a lot of big questions of these clubs to have to constantly think outside of the box because it's a far more difficult proposition for them to compete in that league when they have maybe a third of the budget that their bigger rivals do
0: and um and and bristol's really interesting i think because you know bristol literally used to be called bristol academy mm. um and they were tied to the university and their initial WSL plan was that they wanted all of their players to come from the university and obviously the game has developed you know, away from that and, and, and they can't do that. And they've become Bristol city and really tied themselves to the men's team. And, and I think you could see like the, the sands kind of shifting beneath them. Um, but kind of, I guess, leaving aside some of the, I mean, I don't like to call them losers, but some of the victims, I guess, of, of the, the, the fairly rapid growth of the women's game at the moment, just as a final question, um, You know, in in the men's league at the moment, in men's football rather, there's lots of talk of super leagues and things like that. And um, some of the language I'm noticing recently, particularly after this summer, where because of COVID, um, because of a fairly specialized situation, we're getting this mini influx of US players. And, um, you know, the Premier League in the way it brands itself is obsessed with the idea that it is the best in the world. Um, And it constantly, you know, we constantly have this, it's the best league in the world. And I've just noticed that that's starting to happen with the WSL now as well, with this kind of influx, not just of American players, but Australians and and German and overseas players. And and there's this kind of, we're the best league in the world. And it feels very Premier League. Do you ever foresee, um, I guess... A Super League for women uh, for the women's game and and maybe even because America is such a big competitor and has been the forerunner for kind of women's soccer almost like a Ryder Cup style tournament because it strikes me that the WSL is is using this kind of we're the best league in the world language and personally I don't see Americans standing for that. Um, forgive me for the stereotype. So I wonder if we'll end up with some kind of maybe women's club World Cup. I know it's been mooted a bit, and and maybe that idea doesn't have the same emotional baggage as it does in men's football because you don't have like you know three thousand away fans going to going to the games uh, every week. So do do you see that as an eventuality in the future? And would that would that excite you?
1: Um, I don't know. I mean, I think. Maybe the Ryder Cup's a little bit different because it's not kind of a regular thing. Is it? It's not a week-in, week-out thing, as you imagine. The When they talk of a European Super League in the men's game, you always imagine it being like the Premier League where it's a lot more frequent and things like that. So I think that that would be an issue for women's football potentially because if you're looking at the flight costs of going to all of these different countries and all these different places when... A lot of managers in the women's game are very open about the fact that I think it was Emma Hayes from Chelsea was saying that they actually lose money from certain cup fixtures because the prize money is so little. But by the time you've paid for the hotels and the cup travel and everything like that, you're in a bit of a difficult financial position and you're not making any money. So I think that that's maybe a potential stumbling block at the beginning. But it almost wouldn't surprise me if you were to maybe see a European Super League or a cut-off elite six, seven team WSL because I mean, I think it's been. There have been people within the game that have felt for a while that even in the days before the licensing has changed now, but even before, even a few seasons ago, you're looking at it wasn't mandatory to have private medical insurance. Clubs didn't have to provide that for their players. And a lot of them would just pay for the operations from kind of a practical point of view. It's a lot better to have your play with an ACL injury having the operation a few days after the injury, then waiting six, seven months on an NHS waiting list. But it, that was one of those issues that would highlight the massive gap between a youth and a Bristol and, and a City or a Chelsea or an Arsenal that would just sign up to that sort of thing without thinking. And I think it's been for a while that can you have a league where you have all these full-time teams, but the gap is so big. So it wouldn't surprise me if at some point there is a breakaway of a six or a seven um, WSL team league. Um, with with maybe another additional league underneath it or an extended championship or something like that because I think that we are maybe seeing that they're constantly trying to expand the WSL but how many teams at the moment are realistically competitive um, WSL teams? So it wouldn't surprise me and I think it's certainly something that people within um, women's football have sort of grappled with for a while the, the, the thought of that in the way that we're always sort of in a state of existential mm. crisis in women's football aren't we constantly thinking about where's next and what's the uh, ethical and gender equality implication of this but yeah there is i do think that that's been something that people have talked about for a while even if, if just in kind of passing and, and casual conversation type thing
0: yeah, and and actually th- thinking, uh, I guess at the other end of that spectrum, another another thing you might end up with is is um, I don't know who the sponsor is at the moment for the kind of the St Johnston's pay trophy um, or checker. I was
1: gonna say, is it still check-a-trade? No, is it, is, I think it?
0: it's it's like it's yeah, I I can't remember who it is, but I I wonder if we'll end up with something like that in the women's game as well because simply because Arsenal, like we know that Arsenal, Chelsea, Man City and, and look, Everton are in the cup final and, and Everton and Man United may start to have a say, more of a say in these domestic trophies but I wonder if we'll end up with a kind of almost like a St. John's paint trophy so that um, you know other clubs can get you know, have a realistic chance for silverware. But um, I guess that's a discussion for another time. Katie, I've, I've taken far too much of your time already. So thanks very much for joining us.
1: No, thank you for having me on. I think it's a leasing.com trophy that I've just Googled. That's, that's the yes. most recent I can see. So we'll, see. we'll go for that one. But yes. no, thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed
0: it. My pleasure. My absolute pleasure. And you can follow Katie on Twitter at Katie Wyatt. And that's uh, Wyatt with an H. Um, as I'm sure Katie is bored of repeating (laughs) to to people when she has to say her name and you can find her work on The Athletic. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. That's all we have time for, for this episode of the Arsenal Women Ask Us. Huge thanks to our guest Katie Wyatt from The Athletic for her insights and for her time. Uh, really enjoyed that conversation. I think I think it's just, um, it's, it's a really meaty conversation around the kind of the future of women's football and where it's going and how it's getting there. Um, and, and it's it's one of the things that's, that can be quite daunting, but I think it's actually really exciting about um, a developing sport. And I, ho- I hope that really kind of came across in the conversation like i said at the outset of the episode um, apologies for the gap between episodes we had a couple of guests um, who kind of fell through at the last minute who we will try and reprise um, before christmas it would be great if we can because they're some pretty a-list guests um, so pippa and i will try and uh, bring that to life for you before the end of the year hopefully but really hope that you've enjoyed this episode and we'll be back with another one soon